Have you ever needed someone to stand by you, to strengthen you, to support you as you face a, a, a difficult, perhaps terrifying task ahead of you? In life, we often need others to stand by us, to strengthen us for tasks that are before us. So we, we know this from, from the Bible, there are examples in the Bible, from, from literature, and even from our, our own lives. So in the Bible, we know that uh, others needed help. So Moses needed Aaron and her to, to hold up his hands while the Israelites prevailed in battle. Uh, David, being despised and rejected, needed Jonathan to come alongside him and strengthen his hand in the Lord. Uh, we know this from literature. Uh, just think of the relationship that J.R.R. Tolkien describes between Frodo and Samwise in The Return of the King. As Frodo is weary on the way up Mount Doom, Sam is there to reassure Frodo that he won't let him fail. At one point, he promises that he will carry Frodo up the mountain if it breaks his back and his heart. Uh, we know this from our own experience, don't we? We know that we need others to stand by us and strengthen us for the tasks that are before us. So a daughter needs her father to walk her down the aisle. A son needs his father to run alongside his bike. A wife uh, needs her husband to hold her hand and encourage her, to reassure her that she can do it while she labors to bring their child into the world. A sister in Christ needs the encouragement of another sister to persevere in the faith as she fights off depression and difficulty. A brother needs strengthening from another brother in the Lord as he battles the flesh or an addiction of some kind. And of course, we need the Lord to strengthen us for the task to which He has called each one of us as His children, to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism, speaking of Jesus, speaking of His cross and His conquest of sin and death, His resurrection from the dead, can be scary. What if they yell at you? What if they ghost you? What if they reject you? We need courage. And we need the Lord Jesus to stand by us. Even if our friends and family denounce us or desert us. All that Jesus calls us to do as we just sung about. He gives us the grace to do. His grace will supply all that we need. That's what we've sung. And that's what we learned together today in God's word. That the Lord stood by Paul and strengthened him to speak of the Savior in a difficult, intense moment, to speak of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this is a lesson that we need to remember even as we are sent out from this place. You are sent out as an ambassador of Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Really rewind just a verse to the end of Acts 22, Acts chapter 22, verse 30. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 932. The book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, He sends His disciples out to make His good news known from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that take place in our study of this book. A few weeks ago, we saw Paul purpose to go to Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we read these words. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. This is actually a similar determination that Jesus himself made in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's what Paul is doing here. In many ways, Paul's journey is mirroring Jesus. And this determination from Paul 
is key for how the book of Acts continues to chronicle the conquest of the gospel. Paul understands that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must go on to Rome. And so in the course of our study, we've actually seen Paul arrive in Jerusalem only to be attacked by a mob there in the temple. They thought that he had brought a Gentile into the temple complex. And just when they were about to kill him, a Roman tribune stepped in and saved his life. Now, lest we think that Paul is going to get handled by kid glove, with kid gloves by Rome, they actually stretch him out, ready to whip him, when Paul smartly says, uh, by the way, is it okay for you to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen? Paul spares himself of much pain in that moment. And that's where we left off in our study of the book of Acts, with them dropping the whips, stepping back from Paul. And we pick up our study this morning with Paul still in Jerusalem and with the Roman tribune still wanting to get to the bottom of this commotion, this riot that has occurred in and around the temple complex. Our passage has Paul brought before a Jewish council and tried, just like Jesus was. The tension mounts, we learn there's a plot actually to kill Paul, just like there was a plot to kill Jesus. And then our passage actually concludes with Paul escaping by night. He's given a Roman transport to the governor, to Felix, where he's guarded in Herod's praetorium. And what we will see in our passage is that the resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the Christian mission. And that the Lord Jesus will see to it that His servants speak His gospel everywhere He purposes to send them. God makes plain His determination that His servant Paul will testify of Jesus' resurrection not only in Jerusalem, but also in Rome. Nothing will stop the mission of Jesus, for Jesus stands by His servant Paul. And so here's what this text means for you. Here's the main idea of this sermon. Speak of the resurrection of Jesus, for Jesus stands by you. One more time. Speak of the resurrection of Jesus, for Jesus stands by you. We're going to unpack our text under two simple headings. The challenge, which is to speak of the resurrection of Jesus, and the comfort The sovereign stands by his servants. This is what we discover beginning in Acts chapter 22, verse 30, stretching all the way through the end of chapter 23. Let's begin with our first point, where we are challenged to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Follow along as I read, beginning in Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through Acts chapter 23, verse 10. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by and stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Well, in these verses, we see the tribune's determination to get to the bottom of the brouhaha caused by Paul. And we see Paul's declaration concerning the real reason that he is on trial. And we see the council descend into division and dissension. Consider first that we see the tribune's determination there in verse 30 of Acts 22. Luke tells us the tribune's desire. He wanted to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. Back in Acts chapter 21, verse 28, Paul was accused of being a deceitful teacher and a defiler of the temple. He was accused of teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and against the law and against the temple. He was also accused of bringing Greeks into the temple, thereby defiling the holy place. But this statement from Luke about the tribune's desire makes me wonder if the tribune is buying what the Jews are selling concerning Paul. Whatever the case may be, we see in verse 30 that he wants to know the real reason. This is what is driving his actions along. And we can expect the narrative, the rest of the story, to bear out what the real reason is that Paul is on trial. And so the tribune orders Jewish religious leaders to gather and to try the case. And as the new chapter opens, Paul, he gives his opening statement you see there. As he's done before, Paul begins with a courteous connection. He calls his hearers brothers. Paul is attempting to recognize the solidarity that he has actually with his accusers in their Jewish heritage. When there is conflict, it's always good, if possible, to begin to find common ground. That's what Paul attempts to do. And astonishingly, Paul announces that he has lived a life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This is actually a statement that Paul is going to make later in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Paul is going to say, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Well, what does Paul mean by this statement here in Acts 23? He means that he has consciously lived a life in conformity to God's commands. Now that doesn't mean that Paul has always lived perfectly in accord to the law, or with the law, or that he was sinless. But what it does mean is that when he had knowledge of the law, he lived in accordance with it. Paul didn't consciously violate God's law. He was a sinner. He admits his sinfulness all throughout the New Testament. He certainly violated God's law, but he didn't do so consciously or consistently. He didn't sin against God with a high hand, as the old writers would say. He, he didn't say, you know, God, I, I know that your law says thou shalt not steal, but I'm going to go ahead and take that anyway. Uh, he, he didn't say, you know, God, I, I know your law says do not commit adultery, but I'm going to go ahead and look lustfully at that woman anyway. That's what sinning with a high hand is. Paul didn't consciously violate God's law. And since he said, up to this day, he seems to have in view both his days before his conversion to Christianity and his days after his conversion to Christianity. And yet it's almost certain that the claim that he lived a life of conformity to God's commands after his conversion to Christianity is what made the council, especially the high priest, angry. Now just pause and consider Paul's claim for a moment. I mean, could you make such a claim? Have you lived a life of a good and clean conscience every day 
and up to this very day? Or have there been times where you have known God's law? Has it sounded an alarm bell in your conscience and yet you went ahead and transgressed it, broke it anyway? You know, I I don't actually think Paul is being hypocritical here. What we know from his life and testimony, especially from Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11, communicates that Paul was being honest. He, He understands that he was zealous for the law. And that makes this an astonishing claim from the man who also said, I am the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Paul's opening statement, it has offended his hearers, especially the high priest. And so the high priest ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth. The high priest's idea here would be to hit him where he is insulting us and our intelligence. The high priest is uh, not well liked throughout history. Interestingly enough, the, uh, the famous his, uh, Jewish historian Josephus uh, says that this high priest, Ananias, was a bold man in temper and very insolent. Uh, he was not well liked even among uh, the, the Jews of that day. And initially, Paul's response is fierce. Right? He, he calls the man who ordered him to be struck a whitewashed wall. It's a, it's a hypocrite. It's similar to the charge that Jesus actually made of the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. The idea is that he's not living in accordance with what God's law commands. He is sitting in judgment upon Paul, and yet he's acting unjustly. This episode is also similar to the one uh, occasion in a trial where Jesus, in John chapter 18, verses 21 to 23, called out the high priest after Jesus himself had been struck on the mouth too. Paul's outburst, calling him a whitewashed wall, telling him that God would judge him, it's met with outrage by those standing by him there in verse 4. Do you see that? They inform him that he's just insulted the high priest. And I think, I've gone back and forth on this, but I think it's probably likely that Paul is speaking ironically here. As if to say, I couldn't tell from this man's behavior that he was a high priest. I mean, he might wear the attire, but his attitude doesn't wear the attitude of one who judges justly. When he quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, Paul is further reminding the high priest and the council that they're not living up to their callings as just rulers according to the law. I think that we can see here not only the importance of a judge having an adequate knowledge of the law, but also the importance of a judge having adopted the law in their own hearts. Righteous character in the course of judgment, of just judgment, is not altogether separable from making just and righteous judgments. The character of our judges and justices is not unimportant, but hugely important. We see that on display here. When we come to verse 6, the real reason that Paul is on trial is revealed, isn't it? Luke is sure to mention that Paul, he kind of reads the room, doesn't he? He knows who's there. He has a sense that this is not going to be a fair trial. And he's held in this council. They're not acting in accordance with the law of God. Jesus didn't get a fair trial, and Paul wasn't about to get one either. Paul knows that he must seek a change of venue, if you will. So he divides the opposition and tells the truth at the same time. Paul's declaration in verse 6 is more than just cleverness in difficult circumstances. This is clarity on the central issue. right? That Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And that Jesus as the resurrected Messiah is the reason that Paul is on trial. After all, Paul would not have converted to Christianity if the resurrected Messiah hadn't confronted him on the road to Damascus. And commissioned him to go and proclaim his resurrection from the dead to all the nations. And why would the resurrection 
especially the resurrection of Jesus, incite such strident opposition. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then his claims to be the messianic king that the Old Testament pictured and promised are vindicated. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then his claims to be God in the flesh are vindicated. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, his claims to possess all authority in heaven and on earth are vindicated. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, all men everywhere ought to bow the knee to the risen king. And the men in that assembly did not want to do that. That is why there is initial dissension in the council. And Luke tells us there in verse 8, a list of things that really divide the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is why the Pharisees not only have to defend their belief in the resurrection generally as a concept, but also declare Paul's innocence in verse 9. This is a really crucial point, actually. The Pharisees declare that Paul is innocent. They, they say, we find nothing wrong in this man. That's actually what Pilate said about Jesus at his trial in Luke chapter 23, verse 4. And just as Jesus was declared innocent at several points in his trials on multiple occasions, so Paul will also be declared innocent on multiple occasions too. Now notice carefully that the Pharisees, they're not actually jumping on board the Jesus bandwagon. They are simply finding a sly way to defend their belief in the resurrection of the dead as a general concept. Right? They believe that in the Old Testament, the end of the book of Daniel spoke of that. Isaiah speaks of that as well. They, they defend their belief in a general resurrection of the dead, but not so much about Jesus. And they do that at the same time poking the Sadducees in the eye by saying, well, well, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? The very point on which they disagree on, another difference in their beliefs. And what they're referring to is Paul's own testimony that the Lord Jesus came and spoke to him on the road to Damascus. So here, they're, they're hearkening back to that. And yet they're not fully affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. As you can see with verse 10, the dissension moves from immoderate kind of debate to violence. Or immoderate violence, dissension. Paul's life is in danger. Once again, the Roman tribune rescues Paul, brings him back to the barracks. Now, as you step back and kind of survey the scene as a whole, it's not hard to see the central issue. Right? Just, just look for the conflict. Look what they're fighting over. The conflict comes when Paul speaks of his belief and hope in the resurrection. And by that, that's probably shorthand for his belief and hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Conflict comes when he speaks of this. And there are at least two applications that we need to consider from these verses. Our response to Jesus' resurrection and our responsibility. There are only two responses to the resurrection of Jesus. They're right there in the council. And it's not between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's between the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Paul. Paul believes in the resurrection of Jesus, whereas the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't. They reject the resurrection of Jesus. There's only two choices you can make when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. You can believe and trust in it for your life and hope and salvation, or you can reject Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. But do you know why Christians claim that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Do you know why we claim and teach, as history does, that Jesus was crucified? The reason is, is because God, who made the world and all that is in it, who made all things good, made man and woman and he set them in a garden, he gave them everything they could have ever wanted there in that garden. And he told them, you may eat of every tree in the garden except one. And the day in which you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. 
And God is a truth teller. And Adam and Eve, they rejected God. They rejected his commands. And they took that fruit and they ate of it. They sinned against God. That's what rebellion is. It's deciding to live your own way rather than God's way. That's what Adam and Eve did. They took that I in the middle of the word sin. And they made themselves king and ruler. Instead of bowing before God. Submitting to him. And living according to his ways. Well because of their sin. They plunged humanity uh, into danger. And death. Uh, Everyone. All of us. Have sinned against God. And therefore we deserve to face not just physical death. But eternal death and separation from God. Since we've sinned against the infinite, holy, and eternal God, we deserve to face an infinite, holy, and eternal punishment. And that's what hell is. It is eternal, self-conscious torment for our sins. It's a consequence for our sins. But God, in love, promised Adam and Eve there in that very garden that He would one day send a son who would crush sin and Satan, who would have victory over the grave. And so Jesus, in time took on flesh. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. He walked and lived among us. He lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God and His law. And He laid down His life on the cross for sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus endured the eternal, holy, and infinite wrath of God for all of the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all That his life and death on behalf of repentant sinners was acceptable in God's sight. It was a substitute for sinners who would trust in him. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus, they will receive forgiveness of their sins and embrace and welcome into the presence of God. Friend, this is why you need the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus remained in the grave, then you still will face the punishment for your sins. But Jesus was raised from the grave so that you might escape the punishment that is due to your sins. Friend, today, turn from your sins and place your faith in the risen and reigning Savior. The evidence of this assembly, the evidence of history, the evidence of the empty tomb shows us that Jesus is risen and reigning and that we ought to give our lives to Him. And if you want to know more about what it means to love and serve and follow Jesus, to trust in Him for your salvation, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or the family member that you came here with this morning about this good news, that we can be forgiven our sin and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's credited to us and that we receive that by faith in Him alone. That's our first application. Respond to the resurrection of Jesus with a heart full of faith, hope, and love. But there's a second application for us here in this text. We should not only receive Jesus as our resurrected King, but we should follow Him as Savior and Lord. We who do... We have the responsibility to speak and not be silent about our resurrected King. Beloved, the boldness and faithfulness of Paul to proclaim his hope in the resurrection amid hostility is a model for us. The world may tear us to pieces for our faith in Christ, but that will not change the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and the fact that the world needs to hear this good news about him in order to be saved. Consider these challenging words from the Puritan minister, Richard Baxter. He writes, Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or of men in you, then let them yearn towards your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize on them. And if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity them in such a case as this? 
If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to the helping of others? Do you not care who is damned, so you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves. For it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Dost thou live close by them, or meet them in the streets, or labor with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls, or of the life to come? If their houses were on fire, thou wouldst run and help them. And wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? Beloved, let us speak and not be silent. We have a word from God. We have a word of a resurrected Savior. Let us speak and not be silent about the good news that Christ's resurrection of the dead means that our sins can be forgiven. The story of Acts from one vantage point is the story of the obedience of Jesus' disciples to make His name known, to speak, and to not be silent. Before us this week is a wonderful opportunity, isn't it? To speak of Christ and to not be silent. While the world may celebrate bunnies and painted eggs and delicious chocolates, believers ultimately celebrate Christ's resurrection of the dead. So invite neighbors, invite co-workers, invite friends and family members to join you in celebrating Jesus' resurrection of the dead. Invite them to join you for the Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. on Friday. Invite them to come to know why we call that day, the day in which our Savior was crucified, why we call that day good. Invite them for our regular Sunday morning gathering, our service next Lord's Day. Use the cultural awareness of the celebration of Easter to invite those around you to consider what and why Christians celebrate Easter. Well, having considered, I think, the challenge of this passage to speak of the resurrection of Jesus, let's turn now and consider the comfort of this passage, that the sovereign stands by his servants. That's the second point, the comfort. The sovereign stands by his servants. And the comfort comes immediately there in verse 11. Follow along as we read Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, it's by Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here we encounter the Lord's comfort to Paul and to us, I think. There are three aspects to this comfort that you should see in this remarkable verse. The Lord's presence, His precept, and His promise. We see the Lord's presence there in the words, the Lord stood by Him. What a comfort this would have been to Paul. Right? Think of all that he's just been through. He's just been attacked in the temple by a riotous mob. And then there in the council, he's been nearly torn to pieces. He had almost been flogged by the Roman soldiers too. As the sisters of our congregation know through the women's retreat just a few weeks ago, the presence of the Lord is fortifying in frightening situations. So in Psalm chapter 16, verse 8, we read, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And to be clear, when Luke tells us that the Lord stood by Paul, he's referring to the Lord Jesus. Whenever Luke uses that Greek word kudios, he's almost always referring to the Lord Jesus. So here is the risen and resurrected Lord whom Paul has just proclaimed his open, standing by his servant and strengthening him in this frightening situation. The Lord knew where Paul was physically. He knew where Paul was mentally. 
He knew where he was emotionally and spiritually in that very moment. He knew where Paul was. And he went to be with him. As Charles Spurgeon rightly observed, if all else forsook him, Jesus' company was enough. The Lord, who had stood for him at the cross, now stood by him in the prison. It was a dungeon, but the Lord was there. Better to be in a jail with the Lord than to be in heaven without him. Beloved, remember this comfort. Our Lord Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. That's the promise of God's word in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. When we are in especially fearful circumstances, we must remember that our Savior, He stands by us too. Often we forget the Lord's presence, but praise God, our forgetfulness does not determine God's faithfulness. He stands there no matter how many times we forget that He is with us. The Lord doesn't just stand by Paul. He speaks. He commands Paul. He gives him a, a precept. That's what a command is. He commands Paul to take courage. This is similar to what the Lord Jesus said to Paul back in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. There, when Paul was in Corinth, he found himself in another disheartening situation. And the Lord Jesus said to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. At critical moments in the mission's advance, the Lord Jesus has stood by his servants, strengthened them, and urged them to keep speaking. And that's what he is doing here in our text. Beloved, remember Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verse 33, where our Savior said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, it often appears that the world is winning, and in an earthly sense, that might be true. Yet here is the truth. Jesus has overcome the world. The world may be, appear to be winning, but the true battle and war has already been won by Christ in His death and resurrection. We may lose on earth, but our King has won, and He reigns in heaven to prove it. Take courage and testify. Speak of the Savior's resurrection of the dead. The Lord's comforting presence, the Lord's commanding precept to take courage are followed by the Lord's continuing promise. Do you see there in the words, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Notice that word must there in verse 11. That must is a divine determination, right? It's a sovereign and superintended decree of necessity. Paul has addressed the people in Jerusalem at the temple and then there at that council. He's addressed the Jewish leaders and now he must go on to Rome and testify there. This is exactly what was promised concerning Paul at the beginning, actually, of his conversion. Uh, this Ananias here is this high priest of the council will not prevent, prevent the fulfillment of the word that God gave to another Ananias back in Acts chapter 9. Just after Paul had been converted, God told a faithful Jew named Ananias this about Paul's future. Acts chapter 9 verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is on his way by the divine determination of God to carry the news of the Messiah's resurrection before governors and kings, just as God promised. And what we're actually going to see in the rest of the chapter, here in chapter 23, is just how the Lord Jesus stands by Paul and ensures his safe passage so that he speaks before the rulers of Rome. That's what you need to keep in mind as we read the rest of this chapter. The remainder of the chapter is the unfolding of how the Lord Jesus stands by Paul and safely conducts him to his next destination for declaration. And here's something that I hope that these verses convince you of deep in your bones. God is in control of everything. 
absolutely everything. Even when everything seems out of control, God is in control. This is a deep comfort for God's people. He's in control of everything and He stands by us everywhere. Read the next section of our passage with me. Read Acts chapter 23. Read verses 12 to 15. Now, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, this is frightening, is it not? The Jews made a plot to kill Paul. And the truth is that they've been successful at this kind of thing before. Right? They made a plot to kill Jesus. And they succeeded in manipulating Pilate to do just that. To put Jesus to death. And now they're making a run on Paul. But what have we just been told in verse 11? We've just been told that the Lord Jesus will personally see to it that Paul preaches in Rome. So how will Paul escape this plot? Or better yet, how will Jesus orchestrate Paul's escape? Well, Jesus sovereignly planted a mole among the plotters. Read Acts chapter 16, sorry, Acts chapter 23, verses 16 to 22. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 30, 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, for who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Is this not amazing? It just so happens, right, that Paul's nephew overheard of this ambush. It just so happened that he was able to get in time to the barracks to see Paul. It just so happened that a centurion was willing to listen to Paul and to take Paul's nephew to send the matter up the chain. And it just so happened that the Roman tribune himself was not only willing to listen, but to believe the report. Man is not mightier than the Messiah. One pastor uh, preached a sermon. I laughed when I saw his sermon title. Preached a pastor just on these verses and said uh, the title of the sermon was Relatives Can Be Useful. Uh, indeed, you see here that Jesus can use relatives. He uses the placement of Paul's nephew to carry out his sovereign purpose of seeing to it that Paul is safely conducted to his next destination for declaration. Some works of God are extraordinary, right? But most of them are seemingly ordinary. Never take for granted your position and place. Perhaps God's providence has you there for a reason, to help you advance his gospel, just like he had Paul's nephew among the company of conspirators for a reason. This scene reminds me of how in the book of Esther, 
uh, Mordecai just so happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And what does he do? He ends up saving the king's life. And that sets in motion really the rest of the events of, of the book where God rescues his people through relatives, through Mordecai and Esther. Yes, God is in charge of, is in charge of everything. Beloved, nothing just so happens to take place in our lives. God is sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating all of the events of our lives for His glorious purposes. Our God is in control. As one believer said, all things are taking place under the omniscient mind and an omnipotent hand. Now we should be clear. Sometimes God's providence is a little blurry. It's a little bleak. It's a little burdensome for us sometimes. But think of Paul at this moment. Yes, he is has the Lord's promise that he will testify for him in Rome. He will speak of the Savior's resurrection in Rome. But that doesn't mean that his journey will be free of difficulty. Not promising a bed of roses, was it, right? No, it's not that promise we have. Along the way, Paul will effectively remain under arrest and in prison. He will even go through shipwreck and other afflictions in order to testify in Rome. And still the promise remains while God providentially works out His plan. Beloved, we have a promise that our God will safely conduct us to glory. We may go through difficulty. The rains may pour. The floodwaters may rise. The winds may blow and beat upon the house of your life. But if you are wise and you build your life upon the promises of God, you will not finally fall, for He is faithful. We see His faithfulness continued as He provides Paul with Roman protection. Read Acts chapter 23, verses 23 to 33 now. Then He called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. Now, roll back up to verses 23 and 24. They're remarkable, aren't they? Uh, scholars estimate that they're stationed in Jerusalem uh, were Roman forces numbering from perhaps 600 to 1,000. So let's just round up to 1,000. Let's just call it 1,000 and think about this for a minute. If I'm doing my math correctly, which is dangerous to do math in public, um, even at the number that's provided here, right, the Roman tribune is ordering nearly half of his forces to go and to protect Paul. Even at that number, it's, it's a remarkable number. It's just half of his forces to protect Paul en route to Caesarea. And in this, we see that he was taking that attempt, that threat on Paul's life seriously. 
Even the move at night is an additional layer of protection, isn't it? As you read that letter from Claudius Lysias, the, the Roman tribune, he sends it with Paul to Felix, verses 25 to 30. You can't help but notice a few things about this letter. I, it, it's, it's comical almost. He artfully leaves out a few significant details of his involvement with Paul. Like, how did you come to know that he was a Roman citizen? Oh, you left out the detail that you had stretched him out and you were ready to whip him, right? That would not look so good upon him. So he, he leaves things out. He was getting ready to punish him. Uh, like the Pharisees did in the council in verse 9. Notice too that the, the, he proclaims Paul's innocence, doesn't he? There in verse 29, he explicitly says that he was charged with nothing deserving death and imprisonment. Like Jesus, right? In the course of his trials, he gets multiple declarations of his innocence. Uh, Paul is getting another one here. Now, as I, I puzzled over these verses, I, I asked myself the question, which you should sometimes do in your Bible reading. Like, why are these verses here? Uh, wh why do we need this legal letter from a self-aggrandizing Roman tribune? We, we don't need to be reminded that government officials sometimes inflate their accomplishments and their resumes. So how does this contribute to the overall goal of Luke's narrative? Well, I think the answer is actually quite simple. Luke is wonderfully illustrating that God can use the self-serving and self-exalting desires of men to accomplish his purposes. He can use a proud Roman tribune to protect Paul and grant him safe passage to his next destination en route to Rome. Because God is in control of absolutely everything. He is sovereign and he rules over all. He is most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Remember this about your God, dear Christian. The Lord who stands by you is the sovereign Lord. Nothing happens outside of his will. And he is working all things together for your good and for his glory. So with this letter and the presentation of Paul to Felix there in verses 31 to 33, we're simply seeing that the Lord continues to stand by Paul throughout the whole course of his journey. The Jews, they think they're in control, right? That they can, they're in control of Paul's destiny with their plot. The Roman tribune thinks that he's in control of Paul's destiny through his escort. But the sovereign hand of our God is superintending all of these events and accomplishing his purposes. Our passage, you see there, concludes with Paul's arraignment before Felix. Read verses 34 to 35 now. On reading the letter, he, that's Felix, the governor, he asked what province he, that's Paul, what Paul was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's the place of the uh, imperial guard. So Felix, he, he grants the transfer of the accused, and he agrees to hear the case upon the arrival of Paul's accusers. Until that time, he continues to provide Paul with safe protection in prison. Uh, this is not only a fulfillment of what God promised would happen with Paul to Ananias back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, but this is actually also a fulfillment of what Jesus himself said concerning his apostles in Mark chapter 13, verse 9. So as I, I read Mark chapter 13, verse 9, bear in mind that Paul has just been presented before the governor, Felix. This is Mark chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus says, For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors. That's who Felix is. He's a governor. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. This is precisely what Paul will do. Chapter 24 will present Paul bearing witness before a governor, just like Jesus said. 
And you won't be surprised by what he says. Uh, Paul will once again speak of the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus' resurrection as Messiah. He will speak because he knows the Lord stands by him. He knows that Caesarea, which is where he is now, is not his final destination. The Lord Jesus promised him that he would testify in Rome. So why not go ahead and just say all that you have to say? That's what Paul's going to do before Felix. When you have the certain promise that you will make it to your destination and have the privilege of proclaiming Jesus, you're set free from fear. The presence and promise of the Lord lend freedom and power to our proclamation. And this is where I want us to conclude. Beloved, since we too have such a promise that we will make it to our appointed destination, that we too will make it safely home to heaven, we can be set free from fear and emboldened in our proclamation. The Lord stands by you. Believer, the Lord stands by you. Jesus converted you in part to commission you to speak for Him. You've been converted and commissioned. And just as Paul was conducted to Caesarea and eventually on to Rome, you can be certain that you will be conducted home to heaven. Speak of the resurrection of Jesus for the Savior. He stands by you. In fact, strange things happen when you do. Do you remember what Paul said in his letter to the Philippians? He was in jail at the time, possibly actually in Caesarea, in this very jail. We see him in here and now. Perhaps in this prison mentioned in verse 35. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's speaking of Jesus' resurrection actually led to the gospel advancing even further, even with him being in prison. Paul was stuck in prison, but the gospel was not stuck in prison with Paul. It was going throughout the whole Roman guard. And in fact, the soldiers were being saved. In fact, just a few verses later in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in verse 16, Paul says that he was put there, put in that prison for the defense and confirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Herod's Praetorium, Paul was like a soldier stationed for duty. He was put there to duty, for duty, proclaiming that Jesus Christ was Lord. Where has God stationed you? Where has God put you to proclaim that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah and Lord? The answer is wherever you are. That's where God has put you. Just as those soldiers who were on duty for the emperor, so Paul was on duty for Christ, the real king and Lord. We can well imagine, right, Paul in this circumstance, often chained to a Roman prisoner, a uh, Roman uh, soldier. We can often imagine a new uh, soldier being exchanged for a new one, and a new one being chained to Paul, and sitting down next to Paul with Paul with a big grin on his face, and the Roman soldier probably looking at him going, so what are you smiling about? And Paul just saying, well, Jesus put you here. Uh, for me to tell you about him. You see, Jesus is more sovereign than your commander who just ordered you to be chained next to me. Jesus wanted you to know that he is risen, that he's reigning, and that your sins can be forgiven. We know this because Jesus, he's been raised from the dead. He's so much in charge of this universe that he's worked it out that we could sit here and talk about him. Beloved, wherever God has stationed you in life, he is standing by you. That's the comfort. He is the comfort. 
So take up the challenge and speak of the Savior. He knows that you need Him. He knows that you need Him to strengthen you, to speak of Him. In fact, that's the very reason He's standing beside you. Let's pray together.